Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E. M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Josh Smith, who plays guitar in North Lane, who is a super well-known Australian metal band. They've been around forever and have just crushed it. Their most recent album, Alien, was extremely well-received and even had top 10 chart positions in the US, UK, and Australia. Josh is an impressive dude. He's also an entrepreneur. He's an artist manager. He manages North Lane as well as other artists. And he's got other businesses. For instance, he is the largest retailer for bare knuckle pickups in Australia. Anyways, I'm going to stop talking. This is a great episode. I found it to be a really inspiring chat. I present you, Josh Smith. Well, Josh Smith, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. What's going on, guys? Hello. Hello, Jonathan. Dude, what time is it for you? It's 9.30 p.m. on a Tuesday night, and I'm really excited because I get to talk to you guys, get to see my old mate, John Brown. Uh, he's smiling <laughs> and waving at me. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good time. Are you guys in lockdown? Like, where, Okay, so first of all, it's 7, 7.30 a.m. here. The, it's always interesting whenever I podcast with Australians because it's either the next day for you guys or just this massive, it's so such a massive difference, but are you locked down or is life normal near you guys? Yeah, dude, if you reckon that time zone's weird, just imagine what your body does when you leave it and you fly to your time zone and then you <laughs> jump on a tour bus. Well, I've done it. Oh, you, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, it's, uh, when we did nail the mix in Australia, we were there for two weeks. And Shit. so by the time so you had enough I time was to get finally getting used to it. Yeah. Right. As I was getting used to goddamn time zone came right back. Mm. So it was like one month of just torture. basically. <laughs> this is my first swear word. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's really weird, actually, because when I, the first time I went to Australia, I actually went there from Los Angeles and I landed two days after. <laughs> oh, that makes so much sense. But yeah, the, back to the question, we are in lockdown. So I live in Melbourne um, and we went into like a really hard lockdown and then 
they started easing restrictions and now whoops this security guards were like having sex with people at the quarantine hotel and um what now there's a what? new outbreak and we're all going to fucking die so now it's an std too <laughs> <laughs> fuck well done god l- life is over yeah Basically. You can't even fuck anyone anymore. Is that actually what happened? 100%. Secure. I'm, I'm not like, I know Aussies are notorious for like screwing with people and telling them <laughs> well, what dude, we no, call. No, that sounds like a Florida story. Yeah. Well, Australia is like Florida with British accents. Oh man, you guys are way better than Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Give yourself some credit. Yeah. We call it uh, telling someone a porky here if you're like... Telling him a lie to... What does that mean? You know, if I made that up, I'd be telling you a porky, but... Oh, okay, okay, okay. Telling you a porky. <laughs> I can't believe you've never heard that phrase before. What the fuck? <laughs> what? <laughs> wait, wait. So I I do want to hear the story, though. So there, what's the quarantine house? First of all, what's that? Okay, so there was... Government was... Anyone who came in from overseas had to go to a hotel, Um in every different ah, state, okay. like all the other states had the police and the ADF, like the Australian Defence Force military, doing the security at the hotels. But in Victoria, they got private security firms to do it. So they were doing all kinds of weird shit, like making up fake names of security guards that were apparently on the payroll that weren't even there so they could collect money from the government. And then oh, they were like getting into Ubers with the people that were meant to be quarantined for 14 days in a hotel room to go and get takeaway food and having sex with them and, like, sharing lighters and all kinds of stuff. A um, bunch of the security guards got sick and then it just spread from there. Jesus. Pretty much the whole thing was a shit show and now it's led to this. So we're back under what they Dude, called that stage is a Florida three lockdown. Story. <laughs> So I'm I'm only allowed to leave my house to exercise and buy groceries pretty much. By exercise you mean like run around outside, not go to a gym. Yeah, I mean I'm like I'm well into cycling, so that's like my jam when I'm not off tour. Well, when, sorry, when I am off tour. So it's fine for me to do that. I just can't ride with any of my mates anymore. Um and some of the bigger like mountain climbs I'm not allowed to do because they're too far away. But, yeah, you can't go to a gym. Like, yoga studios are shut, stuff like that. Can we talk about cycling for a second? Sure. Yeah, we'll get to get music and stuff, but I want to hear a little bit about the cycling thing. Um, and uh, our, our listeners appreciate it when we deviate from just... So how do you pick your downstrokes? But, yeah, cycling, <laughs> when did you get into that, and uh, how serious are you about it? Well, before I was a professional musician, I was a, I guess you call it amateur athlete. So I played guitar like casually when I was a teenager, but I was training about 25 to 35 hours a week. Holy shit. So at first I was a swimmer um, and then I got sick of that when I was about 14, 15 maybe and um, then got into triathlon. And when I was doing triathlon, uh, I would race for a cycling club in the triathlon off-season because it's when... They would do all the road races for cycling and it's one of the disciplines. But I've been like riding bikes with my dad and stuff since I was a kid and always loved the sport. Uh, like get up early to watch the Tour de France and stuff. I was that into it. Um, and then when touring kind of kicked off, I mean, I kind of like quit competitive sport. I, I got to a 
pretty elite kind of stage in that, maybe about as elite as the band is. It was that serious and decided that I needed to do other things with my life because didn't really have time to do anything else. So went to university and then not long after that, um, North Lane started picking up and I started touring a lot and I got back into it at the end of last year because I, I had like an old bike here to get around and it got stolen. So naturally I had to go out and buy something that was fucking sick. Um, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, a week later I was riding like 200 Ks a week and just kind of went downhill from there, man. Like now I'm selling off amps to buy more bike stuff and yeah. That's why you've been selling the amps. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. A <laughs> <laughs> couple of things I'm wondering are when you do triathlons in Australia, are you swimming in the ocean? Yeah, of course. You guys are brave. Okay, so that's so <laughs> all we hear about are shark attacks there. I know that it's super rare, but and I know that Australia is the size of the US, but like you know, Man. we only hear like four stories a year out of Australia and three of them are great white attacks. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens. My my drummer, Nick, he bodyboards like every day without fail. He's he's one of those ones. I, I guess like growing up here, you grow up around the water and you're really comfortable with it and you just don't really care. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, it, I, I'm sure it's a totally sensationalized thing. But what I'm curious about with your cycling or exercise is if uh, you kind of approached guitar playing in a with like a similar sort of mindset, at least for the getting good at it part. 100%. And, and like even more so my attitude towards hard work and building a band. How so? I get all of that from competitive sport and training. I guess it's like, you know, staring something in the face and going, this is a task I need to complete and just working tirelessly until you complete it and knowing that like, you know, if you're not doing something that you could be to further your career, somebody else is and they're the one that's going to reap the rewards from that. And they're like instincts you kind of learn from that, I guess. You know what? I think the coolest thing about exercise is that it's completely objective. The results are objective. Like either you complete it or you don't complete it. Either you make a better time or you don't. You lift a higher weight or more reps or you don't. And there's no, there's nothing subjective about it. It's, it's a binary thing. Either it is or it isn't. Man, music can be looked at in exactly the same way though. Because if you're lazy and you're writing an album, you write a shit album. You know, if you're on tour and you're not taking care of your body, you know, you, you're going to perform like shit. If you haven't practiced and then you go on tour, you're not going to play well. And, you know, like you would analyze a race, you can analyze the performance and listen to every mistake you made and keep yourself accountable. So many of the same things apply. And it's really funny because a lot of people that are in music that have taken a similar path to me that I know, uh, like Annie Marsh from Die Art, for example, also have a background in competitive sport before they were yep. deep into music. Before he got mangled. <laughs> <laughs> I know his story. It's an unbelievable story. Yeah. Of his, uh, the way he got injured and then learned guitar. It's I haven't heard that one. You haven't? (laughs) It's on a, I had him on the URM podcast and we talked about it. It's crazy. Yeah. Like he's one of the most impressive people I've ever met. Yeah. 
If you didn't know the story about how he switched into guitar, you should. I'm you gonna should listen hear to it, that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he, he like he got fucking mangled. That's and crazy. Basically, learned it in his head, kind of in the hospital, kind of thing. It's one of those kind of genius things. So it's inspiring, but. Anyway, sorry to cut you off. No, that's so good, man. So you're you're saying that you're finding that people who kind of share that discipline are kind of on the same page as you? Yeah, 100%. And like, you know, you need to have discipline as an artist as well. It's it's one of the hardest things to have as an artist is discipline because, you know, especially when you become a professional, no one's forcing you to sit down and practice anymore. Like, you know, no one's forcing you to write music and hold yourself to a certain standard and no one's forcing you to take care of yourself on the road and like perform as well as you can you can get carried away with it you can get lazy and you know I think having that base of discipline really really helps me it helps me you know if we've got an early early bus call and I need to get up early it's fine because I, I do it when I'm off the road and it's hard but you reap the rewards for it I know that you said you were semi-pro and it's just a part of your lifestyle but do you ever get i'm wondering this because i've heard this from people who are like elite athletes too do you ever get what i call the bitch voice like i don't want to do this yeah does that still happen to you and then you do it anyways yeah okay so it never goes away right no you gotta conquer your inner bitch (laughs) yeah so the so the inner bitch is not something that magically disappears no never that's great and it never gets easier you just get faster that's all it is it's like guitar never gets easier you just get better at it what you're both saying is is that i'm lazy that's what i'm hearing <laughs> <laughs> dude i i'm fighting it in myself too so it's uh no i, no, I totally get it i totally understand yeah well the reason i'm bringing it up is because i think like you said with practicing especially as you start to get more pro as as you know if people listening aren't pro, then little uh, here's a little enlightening uh, fact. Most pros practice less than they did when they were not pro. Yeah. Except for like virtuosos and stuff who are just obsessed maniacs. But <laughs> And I think that it's partially because of what you said. It's uh, nobody's, they don't have, they don't have that same thing to prove that they did before, but also a bunch of other things are now in their lives, like the realities of having a professional band. And so they let things get in the way and uh, it's just not as, it's not as interesting. And I feel like similar to exercise, you have to make yourself do it. The the, the thing is though, is like as, as a professional musician, I, f- I think like I, I heard um uh, Dan Searle talking about this actually. He was saying like, because of the amount of hours that he put in when he was younger, He's able to just like not play drums all the time when he's off tour now. Yes. And then, you know, brush up on his skills leading up to a tour and, and then play well because he ha- he's laid that foundation. And I think yes. like as you, you know, you, you get better at your instrument, other things about you become more important. You know, if you're playing in a band that isn't, solely focused on how fucking insane the music is and you write a good record and you establish a certain standard of playing, like you don't really need to move very far from there to better your career. You need to write better songs and that's not the same as as practising guitar, I think. 
I'm not saying don't practice guitar. It's not the same like technique or same way to focus your time, but I think it's the same amount of effort. So I think you, you're absolutely right. What my take on it is that people who worked really, really hard at technical stuff when they were younger, they built up a base, like a muscle memory, kind of like if you're an athlete and you've been doing it for 20 years and you stop for a year and then you come right back, you're going to bounce back into it because you're, you're already set up for it um, yeah, internally than someone who just started out of nowhere. So I think that, yeah, people who've been playing for a long time, who really, really worked hard and got good, they've already got that part of it done. But, and so, yeah, you're right. Then writing songs become more important, that kind of stuff. But I still think it's the same amount of effort. It's just focused in a different direction. My point is it's not, your focus to get further in your career doesn't need to be, can I sweep pick this section faster at 20 BPM and sinking two months into that? Can you imagine doing that now? Yeah, no. <laughs> it reminds me uh, of, um, I feel like I've told the story before, but my dad was friends with a really famous jazz drummer who back in like the 70s, 80s and 90s toured with huge pop acts. Like one of those like gospel jazz dudes that, you see playing with like Justin Timberlake, that kind of drummer is one of those. We played with like people that were huge, like Diana Ross and people like that. Anyways, when my dad was friends with him, he was maybe 45, 50. Mm. And I, and the dude was fucking phenomenal at drums. And I asked him if he practices. He was like, I don't practice anymore. I was like, how do you stay that good without practicing he's like i don't need to practice i just visualize <laughs> what <laughs> yeah that's psycho <laughs> he just got to the point where like his physical game was so good mm. and so established i mean he'd been playing for like 35 years that at that point he just worked on his mental game and just you know like seeing exactly what it was he had to play and then his body just did it. Yeah. Like that's so important though, is like the, the mental aspect of it. And I think that's probably the key to becoming a good performer over just a good player is your mental approach. And you can't, like, it's something you need to learn just by doing, I think. What are the things right now, like in your musical life right now, that you get bitch voice about that you still do? It's hard to say. Like, I guess um, my role is more so... I work far more in the music, like music industry, than I would consider myself to even be a guitar player anymore. Guitar has now become for me something that used to, which was something that I can do for fun because I spend most of my days yelling at people on a phone because that's what <laughs> artist managers do. Yeah. So guitar is like a means to an end. Yeah. Yeah. Which is actually I love. And, and it's made me enjoy playing guitar more because when I do it now, it's just more fun because it's not the only thing that I need to worry about. And I actually like that better. Um, I guess, yeah, my inner bitch voice doesn't... I don't really know what, in terms of music, what it does. I, I guess I just... I have to keep myself really disciplined to, like, work long hours instead of just kind of slack off because I kind of pick them like I, I work from a home office so 
you know, I can stay in bed until 10 or 11 in the morning if I wanted to um, and get my work done later at night. But, yeah, just, I don't know, getting my ass at the desk and doing everything I can do in the day to be better artist managers is just kind of what I have to force myself to do. And when I'm at home, like, that starts with waking up early and smashing myself on a bike for two hours before I even start my day. But... If I could do that and, you know, get a head start and I feel like I've accomplished something just by the time I sit at my desk, when I go and play guitar at six o'clock at night for a couple of hours, I have nothing to worry about and that's awesome. What what time do you do you start? 5.30. In the week we do like really short, intense rides, so like two hours. So I'll do that. I'll come home, eat breakfast, work at my desk till like one, have lunch, watch some shit on YouTube, some cat videos and stuff like that while I eat and then <laughs> try and take a nap usually around three for about half an hour. And usually when I'm napping, some cunt will call me and wake me up and then I get very grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> try, yeah, I usually finish around five or so and then uh, play a bit of guitar, make dinner and spend time with my partner. If I can. Some some nights I have to work really late, though. It just depends what's going on. How many hours of sleep do you try to get? In the week, like five or six if I'm lucky. A bit longer on the weekends. But, yeah, on Saturdays I spend probably about eight hours on the bike. Just fucking thrash myself and come home and makes me feel good. Otherwise I'll go out on a Friday night and get pissed. So it's better that I... <laughs> Spend that time exercising <laughs> instead of hungover. <laughs> when you're writing a record, does the schedule shift at all? Yeah, totally. So I haven't written a record um, since I've gotten back into sport. Like I, I used to do yoga like every day so that it kind of be the same thing. But with that, uh, when I'm writing these days, I only kind of work on the vocals with Marcus. I don't really fuck with the music because that's John's domain. Uh, he rules it. So the way the kind of um, music writing works is he'll write like parts of a song and we'll go put vocals on it and then send it back to him, usually chopped up into an arrangement that we think works and then we probably develop it three or four times. And when I was doing that with Marcus last time, we are doing that like two or three days a week Um just in between the other stuff that we had going on. And when we were in the studio recording it, it was like every day for like six weeks, just depending on what had to happen. It makes sense. So back to your morning routine, I'm just fascinated with this kind of stuff <laughs> because everybody I know who's a high achiever, like they don't necessarily all get up at 5.30, but what they do kind of share is discipline. So, you know, what, whether it's that they get up at noon and then work till 6 a.m. or wake up at 5.30, there's just a disciplined approach. And the thing that I've also noticed, and I find this true for myself, is that if I don't get those first five hours of the day, if I don't, like, crush that, it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the day. And there's nothing more productive, I feel like, than those first few hours of the day. So I feel like you have to seize that or it's not going to be as good. I think that's really important, but something that a good friend of mine, Doug Castro... He's smart. Smart. I love that dude and I love chatting to him. And one of the things that he said to me was, you can't expect to achieve the same thing every day and you will fall short. 
So as long as you have a go, you know, that's all that matters really. Yeah. Actually, Mick Gordon said this. Uh, Mick Gordon and I talked about this um, on a podcast. Uh, The idea that amateurs wait for inspiration and pros just get it done. I think that the idea, the idea being that you just sit down and work and some days are going to be good. Some days are going to be bad, but if you don't make just sitting down and working the, the norm, you're going to have far less of the good days. Just, there's no way around it. That's one of the things John's always done. So I'm talking about John Dealey from, from my band and he, he, he sits at his desk and grinds and he throws out so much stuff and he might go like a month without coming up with a single idea that he likes, but he'll still be there every day trying, yep. you know, trying something new. And it's, I have to do the same thing, you know, in my role. It's different to his, um, but it's it's important to have that approach and not just wait. You know, you create opportunities. I don't really think luck exists. <laughs> I think you have to create it for yourself and, and the only really thing that creates it is hard work. Like there's no, there's no shortcut. Have you encountered people who, you know, you're talking to them and uh, they're asking you how you did it but kind of imply that you got lucky? I'm sure you've encountered that. No. No? Wow. Maybe. I don't know. Don't really recall it because I think like being an artist, you. I'm impressed. Your music kind of just speaks for yourself, and if they think the record's good, then that you know they're not going to tell you that you're lucky. Well, it usually comes from other musicians. <laughs> Is that something that you all that attitude? Something that you always had? Like I'm just going to make it happen? Yeah. Well, I mean, it goes back to like my sporting background because. You know, when I was doing a triathlon, never get lucky. Like if I was fit, I'd smash it. If I was unfit or I was not recovered or if I had an injury or if, you know, if there was something wrong, it was, you know, you can't control all of it and, you know, things will always happen that are unlucky. But that's not really what makes you feel good about yourself is whether you got lucky or not. It's like did you achieve something because you worked hard? And if you did, then... The feeling is what you do it for, and that's all that matters. So I think the luck thing's bullshit. I completely agree. Uh, and those things that you said, like getting injured or whatever, um, I can. I wouldn't even call that unlucky. I just call it unfortunate. Yeah, it's part of life. Like it's just stuff's always going to happen to you that's shit, you know. And like some people will suffer from it more than others. And you know, in some respects, I've been fortunate. In some respects, I haven't. I mean, I mean, even just being a band from Australia, you have the odds stacked against you and it's much harder to develop a career. But we managed to do it because we worked hard and we suffered a lot. So, like, yeah, you just got to keep your head down and work. There's no two ways about it. Was the goal from the beginning to grow it to where you have, like, international status or... Yeah, absolutely. Was it just to have a cool band? So from day one... Uh, week two. <laughs> week two. Literally week two. What happened we, week one? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I can't remember, man. Week one, we just <laughs> fucked around. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was the second or third rehearsal Northlane ever had. We were talking about if we were going to play the next week or something and we just kind of had the chat, well, look, we can put in 90% of the work and still fuck around and, you know, do whatever we want. But 
you're going to get like 10% of the reward for doing that. But if you put all the work in and you work as hard as you can at something, you're the one who's going to get the rewards from that, you know. So for us back in the day, it was showing up and practicing every week. And then it became playing as many shows as we humanly could. But, you know, from that very early stage, we kind of decided, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to treat it as if we're going to be able to take it the whole way. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if we're going to be popular or not, but we're going to try and push this band as far as we can. Otherwise, I wasn't going to do it because I just couldn't see the point, you know. I didn't want to play in another local band again and waste my time. So from week two, pretty much, we were focused on on um, being the the best band that we could be. Sounds like you don't do things halfway. No, <laughs> not at all, man. So so I have a question for, for you as well. Um, do you guys like have your individual roles in your band? Like you talked about Jonathan, that's his realm. You help Marcus. Yeah, we always kind of played people to their strengths and I think that that's a really important thing to do in a band. So Nick just kind of does his own thing. John writes the drum parts and then Nick goes and fixes them up. I kind of managed the band early on. Then we took on management and I did that. And it wasn't involved in writing at all until we got to Node. So that's always been my thing is like the business side of it. Um, and then, yeah, for Marcus, just his vocals really. But we have things that reflect that in, you know, internally as well. I think it's important to do that and not step on each other's toes. As far as you guys knowing your individual roles, I think that that's one of the most important things, I guess, in, you know, any sort of partnership that people play to each other's strengths and don't step on each other's toes. But I think in a band, that's kind of like the mark between bands that go far and don't, you know, assuming that their music's good. We all know bands that have good music, but they couldn't sort out that internal shit and they stunted their own careers. So I really think that that, you know, if everything is equal in terms of music, that's the thing that kind of determines how far they're going to go in in many respects. Well, there's a saying that it's kind of a fuck saying, but it's there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. And, you know, I think some bands work really well collaboratively. Um, some bands assign certain roles to certain members, whatever works for you. But I think like stepping on people's toes is fucking stupid. And if you can give people things to own for themselves and it applies in business too, you're going to get way more out of the individual and, you, you know, yourself as well. So I, I don't think the same model works for everyone, but yeah. I agree. I, I don't think it's that it's the same model for everyone, but I think that if you don't find what works best and uh, let people do what they're best at, then, you know, it could be that the way that it works best is a hive mind situation there, you know? Yeah, of course. But I think the key is learning, figuring that out. So I guess what I'm impressed by is seems like you guys figured that out pretty fast. Yeah, we did. Like, cause you know, I knew what I was good at. John knew what John was good at. Nick, when he came on board, he had his strengths and, you know, our two vocalists that we've had just kind of did their own thing and were really good at that too. So, yeah, I, I think we worked that out pretty quickly. I I just kind of took on the band mom role and that turned into a manager as things got more serious and, you know, John's just always been grinding away at the music. Um, but it works for us and... 
you know, there's a, a couple other bands that operate that way too. You just got to kind of figure out what you're good at and work really hard at it. Don't let your mates down. Where did your business sense come from? I think it's just something intuitive about me. Like I was always pushing myself really hard in whatever I was doing growing up. But after I finished school, I went and did economics and marketing at university. So I learned a lot of the skills there. But like all of the subjects I picked in school were kind of gravitated towards that as well. I didn't even study music at school, actually. And <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's where. And I just taught myself other stuff along the way. Constantly adapting to situations just with the management side of things. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So you said you didn't study music in school. I see here that I want to talk about this because I think it's interesting. You were told by a teacher that you got dropped by your first music teacher because they said you weren't making enough progress. My first guitar teacher, yeah, dropped me after like a year or two. How old were you? Oh, probably like 12. Do you think that influenced not wanting to study music in school or did that just piss you off? No, I just think like... The music department at my school were not really interested in what me and my long-haired friends, what kind of noise we were making at lunchtime and didn't really like us. And I just, <laughs> I just got really turned off by the pretentiousness that exists in like, you know, academia of music as a whole. I just fucking hated it. I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't understand why learning about all these other genres mattered to, you know, the aspects of music that grabs me. Like they had nothing to do with, um, you know, the shit that they were teaching us in school and I just, I just didn't like anyone from the music department. But, yeah, my first guitar teacher, he kind of, by him doing that to me, just kind of gave me determination to prove him wrong and practice really hard and... It's probably one of the best things that happened to me as a guitar player, actually. Sounds like it lit a fire. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I actually experienced the same thing as that with my music department at school, which is quite interesting. I didn't, I didn't have a guitar teacher that dropped me, but the same mentality is that they didn't basically like guitar music. That was it. <laughs> it's kind of weird, isn't it? Like how yeah. they'll teach about music and then completely miss one complete sector of it for, through their bias. You know what the weirdest part about it is, John? Like there's this other guy from a band that went to my school. I think he was in the grade above or below me. But he like played along with that. And I, I knew this because my brother and sister went to the same school and were younger than me. And after I'd left, um, his band supported mine at a show and they wrote an article about his band supporting my band in the school newsletter, failing to recognise that one of their ex-students was in the band that was headlining. <laughs> so that's how much of a shit they give. I don't really Oh, my care. God. That's, yeah. that's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, oh wow. whatever, man. Good fucking riddance. <laughs> I learned what I had to. I guess it worked out all right. That's, that's kind of why I dropped out of Berkeley, actually. I felt like, everything that I was doing there was completely irrelevant. They didn't take metal seriously at all. Unless if you're uh, in a, no dig on dream theater, but unless you were doing that stuff eg exclusively and trying to sound exactly like dream theater, that was like the only sliver of heavy music that was like 3% acceptable, but it was kind of the same sort of thing. Which is 
Crazy. Because, like, what year was that? 99 through 2001. Yeah. So biggest selling band that you're probably listening to then, I don't know, maybe Limp Biscuit. Do you think they gave a fuck? Slipknot. <laughs> yeah, Slipknot. Yeah, Slipknot. Like, that's the thing, man. Like, I think, like, music theory is so important and it's something I neglected, right? But there's so many other lessons to be learned that are going to matter, in you know, if you want to have a career in music too. I think it's really, really important for musicians, especially in their formative years, to not waste their time with bullshit. But what's difficult about that is that there are some things that you should learn because they're good for you. Mm. Uh, and it's hard to know what those things are. So I agree with you. Theory is a really good thing to know how to do there. There's some basics that are just good for musicians to learn. But I feel like when it comes to genres, for instance, everything that you learn is going to come out in your playing at some point. There's no way to take something in without it then filtering through. So if you have zero passion or interest in a certain genre, and you don't want that infecting you, then you probably shouldn't be learning it. Yeah, infecting's one way to put it. <laughs> That's how I see it. I definitely learned some some complete bullshit that people were trying to explain through music that didn't really need explaining. Like one example for me was trying to explain why Bach used 2C51 at the end of every symphony. <laughs> which is a perfect cadence. You know, it's like, why do I need to explain that in an essay? It's obvious that he just liked when it. When you know how it sounds. Exactly. It's just that he liked it. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, that's pointless side of music, in my opinion, trying to explain that stuff. But there's some stuff that you can't explain, though. Like, I would love for someone to explain to me why Under the Bridge sounds so good despite the guitar being out of tune. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do you explain that? I don't think you can. I think it's an emotional response. That kind of stuff is, you know, when, for instance, when you hire a producer for their ears and they just have a certain thing that they know how to do with bands, that's it's usually not the technical stuff that sets them apart. It's usually that that instinct for recognizing when when that out-of-tune part is the right way to go about it, for instance. Like those, those kind of... Uh, undefinable things that make all the difference. I couldn't agree more. The best guy that I've met at stuff like that is David Bendis. Um, just because of the way he analyzes bands and figures out how they work and like gets inside their heads and, you know, understands what they're trying to do from a real deep psychological level. And, and then, he he's able to really work with them at delivering the parts so well. I, I, I really agree with that. Interesting. Did you work with him? Yeah, I did. We did our fourth record with, with David. Can we talk about that? Sure, man. I want to hear more about that, uh, about that process. Like, how did he get in your head? It was crazy, man. He, like, uh, I don't want to give away his secrets, though. Like, I, I feel like if I talk about everything he did, it kind of well just leave some out yeah so I guess like for him getting to know us was way more important than starting the record so I don't even think we did any work for the first two days the first day we just <laughs> went out on his boat on a lake and got really drunk <laughs> and then it was kind of up to him to see how we pulled up the next day at the studio and you know how we were behaving 
Um, we did a bunch of exercises on us to kind of see how we interacted as a band and explain some things about the way we work together that we didn't even understand, like who doesn't listen to who, who doesn't think their opinions are valid, shit like that. And then as we became like deeper into the recording process, he did a few things like he has this very particular click that he uses for his metronome um, and it's very short and sharp. And I've never, I'd never heard anything like it. It's like difficult to listen to. And he was saying like when we were like, oh, we, we don't want to record to that. And he was like, um, well, all my bands that come in, take it with them when they leave and start using it live if they play to a click. And we're like, yeah, all right, whatever, old man. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we're lucky to have a really good drummer. Nick is the most talented musician in the band. He's just fucking phenomenal at drums and so good at holding time. Like he has a jazz background. He's, he's just very well schooled as a drummer and just practices all the time. He does lessons off tour. Like he's, he's one of those guys. And Bendeth put him on our click and then his click after he'd recorded to ours and pulled him into the control room and showed him how out he was. And then kind of use that as an exercise to break down all of Nick's confidence so he could learn to play in time better after being a professional for almost 10 years. So that's the kind of things that he does. He has conversations with you while you're tracking guitar to get you to stop over-focusing on it and, and just play more naturally and stuff like that. That's pretty amazing. So the thing that I've heard about him is that it's an intense psychological experience to work with him, <laughs> yeah. but nobody can argue with the results. No, you can't. It's a thing. Like you can't. Yeah, everybody. Everybody knows that he's a phenomenal producer. But what I know about how he does it is that uh, he gets in there and he finds a way to finds a way to bring out what's really underneath. I don't even think we saw the results from that process on that record. That record didn't do very well and I don't love it, but it was the one after it where we kind of had the payoff, I think, because we kind of went away from that experience learning so much and then when we came back and started working on new music again, we were just so focused on what our vision for it was and so like on top of why we were making the decisions that we were that we were even able to produce it ourselves. So like he kind of gave us a gift that, you know, was realized years later. I guess it's kind of like uh, when people go to therapy, they're not going to get the results yeah, right away. One, I guess it's going to take time. David Bender therapy. Fuck. He's definitely one of my favorite producers. Yeah. Definitely. 100%. I mean, he's uh, obviously him and uh, who was his assistant? Dan Corneff. Dan Corneff. Yeah. Between them two, that early 2000s era where you had like Under Oath, uh, Lost in the Sound of Separation, through to Paramore, all that stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, there's no denying that he was fucking great. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I spoke to him recently and he, like a lot's changed there. He doesn't do records like he used to anymore. He would like mix on a console, do everything live. He was calling us at like fucked hours of the night going, I need a fucking mix revision. Now are you not getting it? And just like, yeah, man, mental, mental experience. Very old school. <laughs> <laughs> 
You've worked with Putney though, right? Yeah, I've done two records with Putney and he mixed another one as well. Will's one of the homies. He's pretty phenomenal too. I love Will. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get in touch with him? We got him to mix our our first album. We just, we liked his mixes, so we hit him up and he agreed to do it. And we were really happy with the results. So when it came time to do our second, we had a bit more money to spend. We went back, did it, did the actual album with him. And then that went really well. So when we did our third record, our original singer had just left and we were feeling pretty lost and like underprepared and kind of lacking vision. And we thought the only person that could kind of bring that together was Will. Why? Uh, just because he understood the band really well. We did a Nail the Mix with him in December and shot a course with him. And I've known him for a long time, but it was my first time working with him. I think I've known him for like eight or nine years, but never worked together before. This is his first time. And what I noticed was the moment that we were like, okay, we're doing this. The nature of how we interacted changed completely. It was like I got the the professional will, and uh, the professional professional will is uh, he's like the most meticulous dude, like one of the most meticulous people I've ever met. The dude is a fucking machine, so so driven. I'm sure you found the same thing. I couldn't agree more. He, he, he's got an insane work ethic and he's just, he's a lovely person. But when you're working with him, like, I thought he hated me at first just because of how serious he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he's just serious about the results. Yeah, man, that's it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's hate at all. So you guys went to him or did you bring him over to you? We went to him twice and then we flew him to Australia to do, uh, we did a split EP with a band called In Hearts Wake in Australia after our third album and we flew him to Australia to do that and that was the last time we worked with Will. We did a record with Bendis after that because we wanted to try something different and since then we've been doing it on our own. So just out of curiosity, from your perspective as an artist, what is it about an engineer or producer that, mixer, whatever, that makes you say, all right, we're going to go with this person? That's such a difficult question to answer, I think. I know. I, I guess it just comes down to what you're looking to get out of out of the uh, relationship. So, you know, if some just say you want a record to sound, you know, a certain way, I don't know, just say you were trying to write metal that was really heavy and you wanted someone who could mix guitars really heavy, you would get someone like Henry Good to mix it. Right? Yes. Uh-huh. If you want huge guitars, you're like, well, he's done those records and the guitars sound fucking massive. And, you know, before him it was Nordstrom, wasn't it, out of that same studio? Yes. So you would go, well, yeah, I want the guitars and drums to sound like that on my album, so I'm going to give it to them to mix. And if they have control over the tracking process, then you're probably going to absolutely get the results that you want. But maybe you don't want that and you want something else. You know, for us, like the Bender thing was because we wanted someone who who could kind of work with this in a totally different fashion to what we were used to with Partner, who's very matter-of-fact and Bender is the total opposite. And, you know, we needed help kind of more with our vision than anything. And he was really good with that. So we've always picked based on, 
you know, if we want it mixed a certain way, like we got Nolly to mix our last album, Alien, because we knew that he was someone who could marry all of the stuff that we were trying to jam into that album together in a way where it would sound balanced but still absolutely slam. So, yeah, we've always picked people based on that. And and Chris Blancato, who um, did all the tracking for Alien as well, we've worked with on a bunch of occasions in the past too. He's someone that just really understands what the vision is for the band. So getting him to like track and engineer it is a really fast process because he knows exactly what results we're looking for. So it's a very outcome oriented decision. Yeah, of course. Cause like, you know, the thing is some producers, you know, they'll, if you need help writing songs, they might be your guy. If you, if you can't even come up with a finished product or you need help making that better there's there's guys out there that'll that'll do that like wizard blood for example yes but you know for us we don't want anyone meddling with that because we've got our process you know it's really outcome based but yeah i think guidance helps too you learn these things over time what gave you the balls to produce it yourself after working with people? Like, basically, I consider Bendeth and Putney to be titans at this point. Will is titan level now, and Bendeth has been for a long time. So it's a ballsy decision to go from having someone like that, you know, captaining the ship to doing it yourself. Like, what gave you the balls? Well... We knew that we could get the sounds that we wanted ourselves and, and that if we, we handed it over to Blancato for all the instruments and Dave Petrovic, who's a f- fucking phenomenal vocal producer who lives in Sydney, we knew between those guys, like, audio-wise, we could deliver what we needed to Nolly to mix it right. Like, they would get the sounds 100%. The balls came from the fact that we were so confident in the topics of the songs in what the lyrics were and you know we were finally happy with how we put all that together that we felt if we involved the producer they wouldn't even understand the mission and and the vision of the record as much as we would and on top of that we felt like the personal like um the personal hurt that's in there and you know, how raw it is would almost get filtered out a little. And and we didn't think we needed any other opinions about what we were doing because we were so comfortable with our process in writing songs. I, I have a question here. Would you say that the topic is what defined whether or not you got the producer? So with this album, obviously, I, I know what it's completely about. Um, the previous albums, would you say that because of the personal nature of this topic is the reason why you didn't get one so i I don't i don't think it's that i think it's because our vision was so succinct that we didn't need it yep yep so our vision for the music was so succinct and the other thing is the producer has to also understand what music you're trying to create and we don't think anyone did except for us before it had been written because i'd never heard shit like that mashed together before in the way that john did it and if you know like you took that to a producer and and tried to explain how you wanted it to sound. I don't even know if they would understand. I don't know anyone that 
also would have just sat there as an engineer, which is it's, it's really all that we needed was an engineer. We didn't need, you know, Chris did a lot of producing in, in way of like getting us the sounds that we needed. But I, I think it's more the vision than anything, John. Like if the vision's there, I, I think a producer helps a band realize the vision. But if you're experienced enough, you can do it yourself. Sounds like you really learned how to materialize or manifest that vision after the experience of working with Will and David. Yeah, absolutely. We owe it to them. I can't lie about that. Yeah, you learn how to realize your vision artistically and also sounds like through the Benda thing, you really learned how to work together even better to where it was at a level where having someone else manning the ship would probably slow you guys down or take you off course. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. And it's no disservice to any producer out there. No, of course not. But after a band's done five records, like, you know, you learn a thing. <laughs> no, it's it's not a disservice. It's more like they did their job. Yeah, totally agree. I actually kind of wish that we'd been able to have a producer on our records because we've not actually done that yet. Mm. Yeah. Dude, it makes a huge difference. I can tell you as someone who, you know, has recorded himself a lot, the times that I worked with like a real producer, it was pretty fucking tremendous. Yeah. Like a, re like a real producer. I don't mean, I've worked with engineers a lot, only worked with a real producer once or twice, but just that once or twice changed everything about how I approached uh, creating things. You should try it sometime. It's crazy. Yeah, but you had that roadrunner money. <laughs> yeah, I know. It helps. It definitely helps. Yeah. Yeah, that, that different times, basically. Oh, yeah, definitely. The As far as um, creating the actual music goes, do you write at all? Like, do you enjoy it? Or is it just one of those things where you know your role and you know his role? And I don't want to get in John's way. So, yin yang. I, yeah, I, I write with Marcus um, on vocals, but I, I don't touch any of the music because it's like, why, why would I? Um, he's so good at it. Like, I, we pull songs apart. We suggest that he makes changes and he tries it, you know, but I don't. Yeah, I don't really send him riffs to insert into songs because he's just got such a signature style. Like I can't, I can't imagine anyone kind of getting in between that, and no one does, and it just works. Man, it's so impressive to hear uh, to hear you say that with no ego, and yeah, because I think that that's such an important part of making this kind of partnership work, but it's also... Egos are fucking stupid though, man. Like, they don't get you anywhere. Dude, yeah, it's stupid, but it's also primal and wired into us, I think. Man, if you got a fucking ego, like, <laughs> learn to work together without your ego, work really hard, play some sick shows, let your ego out on stage as a good performer. You know, don't, don't try and stick it where you shouldn't. You got to play people to their strengths. It comes back to what we were saying before. Like, if you have a workflow that works, don't fuck with it. Just because, you know, just arbitrarily, oh, I need to have more riffs in this song or I need to have more songs that I wrote on this record. It's bullshit. Like, if, if your band benefits and you're happier being in the band and then the band gets bigger and you're able to live off it, like, that's the winning payoff right there. It's not how many guitar solos you played on an album or how sick they are. Like, no one gives a shit about that. 
As if people are going to care about that if they, if they haven't even fucking heard about your band at all, you know? Don't you want them to hear about your band? This, this is the stuff I don't understand with musicians and especially guitar Dude, players, I agree. man. Like the egos of guitar players can be fucking insane and it's so unfounded. So that's why I try and focus on the music and, you know, I'm not the greatest guitar player but I, I do what I have to do and do it as well as I possibly can and... You know, that for me has been a payoff and that success, you know, in my books based on what I wanted out of this. I completely agree that that's what I always thought was the ego gratification should be the result at the end. That's it. Like when something does well, like it shouldn't be whether or not you like dominate your partner (laughs) or something over a riff or like some, some stupid ass part. It's so petty to do that, but I've seen that really hold people back. Yeah, dude. Because they can't, they can't stop themselves. You hear it in music too, because like a lot of guys, especially when they get very proficient at an instrument, the their artistic project purely becomes self gratification, and it, you know, I think it's important to write songs that you like and enjoy but if you're writing music solely to gratify yourself and then roping other people in to play that with you it's like yeah i I don't know i I just don't get it you know the kind of people i'm talking (laughs) about though they're just oh yes (laughs) (laughs) i think we all do yeah the thing is i do think that it's a it's like a wired in drive so i understand like i get where it's coming from but i think that what makes us special as humans is our ability to overcome our nature Mm. and to be better than that. And we can choose to, we can choose to turn that part of ourselves down and look at the bigger picture. My dog can't do that. My dog's going to guard its food bowl (laughs) because that's what it's wired, wired to do. But I can choose to put those kinds of primal feelings aside and, look at it, look at the actual outcome down the road. And when I see people not doing that, I feel like they're selling themselves short. They're not using their human faculties, basically. I'm going to say this and take it as you will. There'll be an undertone in what I'm saying. and Don't ask me about it after I say it. But I think for me, <laughs> okay. the, the biggest growth experience that I ever had in my life was ego death. And once that happened, everything changed. And and now I get it. And if you don't get it, that's fine. But if you can learn to suppress your ego, it will get you further in life than anything else. Let's leave that at that. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I completely agree with you. We can leave it at that. All right. Well, then leaving it at that, let's talk about this live stream you guys are about to do. Yeah. What's up with that? Last year, we did a world tour for our album Alien. It went really well, like better than we could ever have expected. And, and it, you know, it came at a really good time for us because we were in a really dark place. We, we did a documentary on that called Negative Energy, which is, you can watch it for free. It kind of explains the road to that tour. But anyway, we did this world tour. We sold most of it out. It was like a big win for us and we hadn't had a big win in a number of years. So it was, you know, it meant a lot. And the Sydney show for that was sold out at this venue called the uh, Roundhouse, which is actually where Parkway Drive did their DVD uh, back in the day. It's a really important venue. Like, 
for music in Sydney. So we brought in like 14 cameras. We took it, like we take a desk mix every night, but that night we took it and we gave it to Chris Blancato to mix and master. And then um, Neil Walters, who was, you know, doing our photo content and video content on the road for a number of years, has, has cut this up into a live performance and we're going to be having eight viewing sessions so four time zones over two days and you can uh, buy a pay-per-view to that and you can watch it and then after that you're never going to be able to watch it again and it was probably one of the best shows of our careers and it sounds and looks sick so you should definitely watch it if you're listening to this it's only ten dollars amazing <laughs> where can they find it the actual show is on the 21st and 22nd of august so it's oh, getting this will yeah oh, okay cool so this will come out before that so you go to northlandband.com you buy a ticket like you would to a show you'll get a link and then you can watch it um, and if you don't, I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to go and get one. Oh, thanks, John. Oh, I'd love to see it. Well, like, I, dude, really like, nice I think, you, you know what? We've been sitting on this forever. And I think like what this whole pandemic is proving is that this might be a really Lazaric unpopular thing to say, but musicians give way too much shit away for free. Like this particular project, we sunk a lot of money in it too and it, it looks awesome and it's, you know, we've made sure it looks great. Like Trivium did that with their live stream. Did they yeah, just the did Trivium too. live stream looked great. Yeah. yeah. And I think like it's important to invest that, but it breaks my heart just to see all of these musicians doing all these live streams for free all the time, you know, we're getting hit up every other week to get asked to do something like that with like low production quality and it's, you know, I just think it's so counterproductive to do all of that for free because it's not even that good. Like it's cool to watch someone in their bedroom once or twice, but continually I, I, I don't know about that. and Kind of devalues yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. You can stream music for free already. You can watch live shows for free on YouTube already and and like the sources of income for musicians are being eroded and this whole pandemic as well as, you know, because it's taken touring out of the equation, there really isn't any way to make serious money as a musician at the moment. So I think people need to have a think about, you know, what's really worth paying for and, you know, if they're playing in a band, be creative about ways that they're going to monetize what they're doing, whether it be stuff like Patreon campaigns or, um, you know, kind of different avenues that they explore or maybe even stuff like this if they're sitting on something valuable to, you know, make it an exciting event and then monetize it. Because if we just keep giving it away for free, it's just going to get worse, man. Lars was right, by the way. Yeah, he was right. Really right. It's really weird because well, I'm pretty sure we all took the piss out of him when that happened. I didn't. I was super unpopular among my friends because I... When he said that shit, I totally was like, yep, he's right. And everyone I knew was like, oh, he's just a rich motherfucker. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Fuck that rich dude. He was so right. He was the only was one with the resources to fight it, though. That's the thing. He did it for us. Exactly. <laughs> Lars did it for and that's us. That's what he said. It's weird to think that. That's what he said the whole time. Yeah. The whole time he was saying it's not about Metallica. 
we have enough money. This is for the next generation of bands or the bands that don't have the money, like Metallica. And everyone was like, you're full of shit. You're just greedy, blah, blah, blah. Nope. He was right. He was completely right. Yeah. If he won, it would have set a precedent and then none of this shit would have happened. But instead, <laughs> you know. Yeah, instead we're, we're bending over for the corporate cock, as it were. <laughs> yeah, like streaming's made things better. So let's not, let's not lie. Let's be honest, though. It, it's still like, without sounding horrible, it's pretty dog shit what you get paid per stream. It is, but, you know, for us, streaming's been really good. Like, it adds up and it's monetized something that was not monetized. So that's very true. Before yeah. streaming, you were getting paid nothing for people to steal your music. Now Spotify has enough money to pay millions of dollars to Joe Rogan to get him an exclusive that they stole from musicians, but at least they're giving us something, you know, and I appreciate that. <laughs> and the income, the music industry overall is making more money than it has in, you know, pandemic aside. Ever since streaming got big, the music industry has been bouncing back big time. It's it's huge, man. It's been like 70% growth year on year for us, like royalties. If you look at our royalty streams, some crazy figure like that just from the growth of streaming, it is making a difference. It just takes, you have to get to a certain point for it to, to really throw a dent, I think. But um you got to be grateful for what you have, but, you know, I just think um, there's ways to be more creative about what you're doing in terms of performing and stuff at the moment that people need to look at. When the pandemic went down, did you guys sit down and say, how the fuck are we going to make this work, basically? Yeah, like, so everyone in Northland was on a salary and has been for a number of years, and I had to I had to cut that because we, we just weren't making enough money. So, like, we were meant to... Do all the European festival tours in the middle of the year and then we had more plans for the end of the year and then after that there'd be an album advance. So like part of my job as a manager is to cash flow the business, right? And, you know, because we're able to pay a salary, that's pretty difficult because I have to make sure that in a really unpredictable business environment like running a band, which is fucking crazy, like the most dumb, stupid business model that exists, I have to be able to cash flow it and just got to a point where I was like, guys, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen. No one knows what the fuck's going to happen. What I do know is if I spend this money that's in the account right now, when we have to go on tour again, I can't float that. So I have to cut people's wages and I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do about it. Luckily, our government started doing welfare payments for people like us and we were eligible to get them, but they're not heaps and, you know, it's it sucks. But what can you do about it, you know? Do what's in your power and <laughs> not wish what you can do. So what is in your power is uh, stuff like this live stream. Yeah, of course. And like focusing on writing new music, I think the pandemic's one of the shittest things that's happened in my lifetime. And, you know, it'll be a, a severe event in history that people look back on and talk about. But one of the things that's going to come out of it is like some absolutely sick music. Like I think there's going to be so many fucking phenomenal albums next year. They come out of this because everyone's locked inside and they're all writing and recording. Everyone's doing it because we can't do anything else. And, you know, as an artist, your currency is your songs. So I think, like, 
it's going to lead to a pretty exciting time when things start to come online again. Whenever the fuck that is, I don't know. Like, I, you know, I, I think all these people that are arbitrarily booking gigs for next year. <laughs> it's kind of funny, just isn't so it? so full of shit. Like, just fucking stop. Like, seriously. Hey, you're smart. You're smart. Like, See, I'm, I'm being put under pressure every day to confirm stuff. For my band and for other bands, it's and a it's fake confirmation. Don't they see that? Ridiculous, man. Because it's like, like you fucking idiots don't know. You don't know if these festivals are going ahead next year. But I'm not allowed to say that because I'm, you know, under your thumb and I'm sucking the dick of whatever big fucking promoter you are that decided that if I cancel, I have to pay double <laughs> my guarantee back. We all know who that is. But like, just. I, I think for them, even doing that just puts this crazy pressure on managers and agents and bands that doesn't need to exist. They should just stop fucking kidding themselves and go, our festival isn't happening until there's a vaccine. Our tour is not happening until there's a vaccine. So why the fuck are you booking it for March then or April or May? Like, I don't fucking know. Announce it when the the vaccine becomes available. If that even fixes the problem or come up with a solution. It might not. Yeah. You know, I just got an email from Nam saying that they're going forward with it <laughs> in January. Jeez. And I'm like, yeah, right, right. So my my thoughts on that are they're just waiting for some big companies to cancel and then they're going to pull it. Uh, I th there's got to be a financial motive. I'm not trying to talk shit on Nam, but like come on. It is not fucking happening in January. And if it does happen, that is fucking stupid, in my opinion. I don't think it will. And, like, I think the reason why you're seeing it with music festivals is because these promoters have shareholders that, you know, kind of, they, they're the ones that... Um, There's pressure. Yeah, they, they own their businesses and they, they need to show them results. So they put these fucking things together and then everyone has skin in the game so like the ticketing companies are holding money from the people that have bought tickets and don't like get it wrong that's not going to artists it's being held by ticketing companies and they need that money to stay afloat so like if this stuff keeps rolling back and it ends up just getting like cancelled you're gonna see a huge house of cards fall down because like all of these companies are negatively geared against each other. So you've got like um, the, the artists expecting guarantees, but we can throw that out. Some of them have deposits that are paid to them, like the big ones, they have deposits that are paid to them in advance. So they use that money to book their travel. And then on top of that, the festivals then paid that money to them that they would have got from the ticketing company as a, a guarantee or a loan or whatever the fuck their arrangement is. And it just keeps going all the way up to like the shareholders and maybe even loans that some of these companies have in banks. So like <laughs> if these festivals get cancelled, it means like... Everyone's going to just get cancelled. Artists get yeah. bent over, travel agencies get bent over, staging companies get bent over, every, all of them get totally fucked. So... The reason they're doing it like. is to just keep that bullshit game happening and I'm just staying well fucking clear of it. Dude, but the question is, if we know that it's going to not happen anyways, isn't it better to get out ahead? Yeah, it is because someone's going to get fucking screwed. But Yeah, it's like either you're going to get, either you're going to have to deal with the problem later or you're going to have to deal with the problem now. Why not deal with it now? It's not even that. They, these like, some of the big festivals... 
Like I got a, a contract from one of them the other week that I'm, I'm probably going to turn down anyway just out of principle but one of the things that they're asking for is that artists get this thing called force majeure insurance that covers pandemics saying that like if there's a act of nature or God or whatever which is force majeure, mm-hmm. um, then they'll have their guarantee paid to them by the insurance company. So really the onus falls on the artist to pay for that insurance that no insurance company is going to grant them because they know the nature of the world that we're living in. So, you know, at the end of the day, the artists are the ones that are getting screwed as per usual, <laughs> just yeah. like just like we did by by Napster and, and the streamers and, yeah. you know, everything. Uh-huh. So <laughs> do what's in your power to, yeah. I don't know, make money while you can, I think. <laughs> It's actually uh, it's it's quite a similar situation to what happened with Soundwave in you know in a in a weird way, like how it just all comes toppling down <laughs> just from lack of uh, I guess pl- like you know planning for what's actually going on. Like if you haven't like with Soundwave, you haven't sold enough tickets, don't put it on. Disclaimer: My business partner for my management company was half of Soundwave. Oh really? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I still haven't been paid. Fuck. <laughs> I don't know if that has anything to do with him because he just booked the bands as far as I'm aware. He was given budgets and then he went and booked the acts that were, you know, they needed to put lineups together. Um, but, yeah, I think I, I think Soundwave just got too big for Australia and then it just kind of collapsed on itself because they couldn't get headliners that were big enough to make it work. I don't know what their financials were like, but I know that they were like overpaying and underpaying a lot of acts. And it it actually did something really interesting to the touring in Australia because Soundwave touring ran all year. It wasn't just a festival. And they would offer these insane guarantees to bands to come over and do a tour here that no one could match. So it actually yeah. drove the price of getting an international act up a lot in the market and um, made things really difficult for a lot of other bands because they couldn't, you know, afford to get good supports on their tours. So it kind of stunted the growth of a lot of Aussie bands for a while. But, you know, I think live music's never a bad thing and despite the commercial consequences of it, if, you know, it's making a difference to people's lives, then you can never get upset about it. Very true. One of the most profound moments I ever had watching music was at Soundwave. It was the first one I went to and I lost my friends and I, I ended up watching Divine Heresy. Sick. Yeah. And I didn't know who they were. I loved Fear Factory. And like I was a huge Dino fan, um, but I hadn't listened to his new band. And I think their singer was Tommy Vexed, if I'm oh, wrong. Oh, yeah, from yep. Bad Wolves. Yeah. Yeah. So Tommy. Good old Tommy. He gets up there and he's like, gives this speech like three quarters of the way through their set. And he's like, which guys out there that that did you hear like play an instrument? And I was like, fuck yeah, me, I play guitar. And he's like, if I can fucking do this shit, you guys can. And I was like, yeah, he's right. And now I ended up playing Soundwave a couple of years later. So yeah, I don't know. Sick. Like live music can it can be um transformative to your life, and you should you should go support shows when they when they happen again. It's actually been proven to reduce like instances of of depression and stuff in people going to like a show every fortnight or something. It's like there's been studies on it. So I, I I can't quote you the exact stats, but 
Yeah, it's important, man. I'm sure there's a profound positive psychological impact that happens to people because of shows, but on a business side, Probably I think anyone, <laughs> anyone who gets involved in the events business should just be aware that the events business is like the most unstable thing to get involved with possibly. Yeah. It just, it just is what it is, you know? I think like I kind of found myself here with this skill set because I couldn't do anything else or enjoy doing anything else. So I was like, fuck, I should probably, you know, think about what nest egg I can lay for, <laughs> you know, whenever North Lane's done. And one of them was my shop, Boutique Sounds, but the artist management stuff I just kind of fell into because a band, you know, wanted me to manage them and... I need a business partner to kind of lean on. So I set up a management company because it made sense. But actually promoting and stuff, I yeah, man, that's that's a dangerous game. I don't know how people do it. <laughs> well, you know, like uh, when, when companies are going for like venture capital or investors or whatever, you know, there's the multiples, you know, that determine the worth of the business and events businesses are considered to be among the lowest multiples. Like so it'll be like one X, maybe two X. Really? Whereas like, yeah, software as a service, for instance, can be like 10 X or something. Yeah. Yeah. Events are considered are like, and you know, uh, I've been in the music industry my entire life. So, you know, I'm talking about my own world, but it just, it just is what it is. Like, and it's because of, and we're seeing right now, like this is right now, this pandemic is the perfect example of why like investors know that one thing can go wrong and the event stops and it's all based on a moment in time and it can get fucked up so easily. And, and that's why people that work in the business are so good at solving problems. <laughs> Because shit goes yeah. wrong all the fucking time. Like some people ask me like, what, what's it like being an artist manager? And I'm like, you know that gif of that dog sitting at a table in a burning house saying everything is fine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, except you're like trying to build the house while it burns around you. <laughs> That's what being an That's artist manager is like. That's a great way to put yeah. it. Yeah. So speaking of the other businesses, like the bare knuckle retailing and the management stuff. Did you always have the plan to kind of have multiple, multiple things going on or did it just kind of evolve that way? I just felt like I was being fucking lazy. <laughs> like I, I come from a family with two really hardworking parents, especially my mom. And she just worked these psychotic hours week in, week out. And I just kind of grew up around people like that. So when I found myself, you know, sitting around in my bedroom with the munchies, not having to go on tour for a couple of weeks' time, just chilling, I was, you know, playing PS4 for half the day, wasting my time. I, I just kind of had this light bulb moment where I was like, I need to do more with my life. <laughs> Because I could drop dead at any second. So, like, you know, why don't I, I don't know, start a business or do more? <laughs> like the management stuff, I, I kind of got forced into it as even from the perspective of managing Northlane. I managed Northlane because I don't know legally what I'm allowed to talk about, but 
there came a point in our relationship with unified management where it was not working for either parties, let's say that, and we had to cease that arrangement. Entanglement. Yeah, and it, it kind of got put on to me to do it because at that stage in my career, we weren't a very attractive prospect for another artist manager to pick up because things weren't going very well. Like we were, our popularity was like falling off a cliff. So I just kind of took it upon myself to do it just because I could. And yeah, here I am. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't know if it ever was the plan, but I kind of had a light bulb moment where I was like, I kind of have the aptitude to be doing this. I've got the education to be doing it more than what most other artist managers have. Most of them don't have any tertiary education at all. And I have the experience firsthand in playing in a band. So, you know, I absolutely should be doing this. And there's a huge disconnect in like empathy between a lot of artist managers and artists because the managers just don't understand what it's like. They don't know how stressful touring and recording and writing albums is. Um, and, And they really struggle to empathize with their artists and, you know, and then they'll go and take credit for all the hard work that the artist have, has done. You know, not saying that their role isn't important, but I, I just think like, you know, in this industry, what people are so quick to forget is if they work in music and they're not a musician, they're only here because of the musicians. Therefore, they don't matter as much, right? Yeah. The musician should be the fucking king because... If you're not creating the music, you're just helping them succeed and that's all you're doing is helping, right? You're not the one with the keys to the castle, so just sit the fuck down. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, that's what I think. So interesting to me, you were saying that the popularity was falling off and it was dark times. Why did you keep going as opposed to cash it in because I'm fucking crazy (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) no I just uh, I don't know I just we've kind of got this undying determination to just keep on going just because we know we can do better every time and I don't think this band will ever break up like we made it this far we knew that we could do better than we were doing at the time and, you know, one of the things that Tom Searle said to me before he passed away, which has always kind of kept us going is because we kind of saw Architects as well. Like, uh, I just fucking love that band and, and the guys in it, right? And, yep. and they were always a huge inspiration for me since I got to know them. And like seeing the trajectory of their career take a similar path. You know, they they kind of came up really fast when they were doing Hollow Crown and then things dropped off a bit and then they started to work their way back up again and that's when we toured with them. And he said to us, it was, you know, if you want to have long-term success, it's the bands that persevere that are the ones that, you know, really will do well. Yeah. Actually, I saw you on that tour. Yeah. It was uh, Architects, you guys. It was at the Coco in London was Straight. the show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was what, 2014, 2013? Yeah. It was 2014. Yeah. It was on that tour that he said it to me and we just kind of always had faith in what we were doing because, you know, we knew that they they came back and um, we thought we could do the same thing. So we just kept at it. I mean, up until that that tour, I think the architects weren't playing anything over 500 cap. No. I think that, I mean, I saw them in 2011 before that in a venue that was about 300 cap with misery signals and a textbook tragedy, actually. 
It would have been. Oh, so it would have been Adam's Adam's old band. So yeah, I mean, I think that the perseverance thing is definitely the key to becoming a successful band. Yeah. I think that the bands that shoot up really quickly have a really hard time maintaining the upper status. I think that a slow trajectory kind of like architects and, you know, some bumps in the road as well is what is key to success. It's like people just hearing your name all the time. I think that's part of it. Mm. For long enough. Yeah, especially in, you know, ugly music and... <laughs> ugly music. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard that? I'm, I'm not going to ask that question again, actually. In fact, no, I will. Fuck it. Outside of music. Now that's ugly music. Metal's great. Yeah. No, I love metal. I live in a metal <laughs> household. My my girlfriend loves metal. We have two black cats that love metal and um, <laughs> it's sick. Like I was cooking dinner the other night, just listening to um, City, strapping on oh, that Oh, what album. a record. Just so fucking loud, right? Yeah. So loud, just in the kitchen, just in my own world. Because, you know, like listening to like blisteringly heavy music is just so soothing. Just makes yes. you so calm. <laughs> and yep. she was like trying to do yoga or something just in the living room, which is like adjoining the kitchen. And I was like, oh, do you want me to like put something else on or turn this down? Because it's kind of heavy. And she's like, do you know who you're fucking talking to and whose house you're in? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. No, I'm a lifer. I think we all are. When uh, when you guys were going through that, did you consciously sit down and say, yeah, we're just going to work through this? Or was it just kind of an understanding? No, I felt like I had to show solidarity and be the one to say, guys, everything's fine. Don't worry. I'll take care of it. You can trust me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they did. Yeah, and they did. No, but I, it was kind of put to me by the guy. So I had a manager for a really long time. Split with him was given, assigned someone else at, at uh, the company who was more of a mentor than a manager for a while. But he was just too busy to do it. And, and it got, I don't know if it was given to him. I'm not really allowed to talk about it. But he Fair pretty much like he couldn't do it. And he, he said to me, like, you can do this, man. You don't need me. You, you can fucking do it. And I was like, shit, I don't know if I can. And then, yeah, I just kind of, I don't know, believed in myself enough to take it on. And I think like knowing that I was responsible for the careers of four other people forced me to do the best job of it that I could because the only person to be held accountable for it was me. And I couldn't let them down you know, after everything that we'd been through. Makes sense. How long did it take for things to start turning around? Two years, I would say. Like, I... That's a decent, that's a decent clip. Yeah, well, I had a long-term plan. So first problem we had was we were in a lot of debt. So I came up with a way to fix that problem. Uh, we had to cancel a lot of international tours that we'd been put onto as a support band, which would have been really good. And instead we focused on playing stuff in Australia that would make us a lot of money and then writing a really good album and taking our time with it, which we pushed back like twice during the writing process. We spent about four times as long writing it as we did on any record before it. And once we were starting to come out of the debt, I started um, planning the touring cycle and release cycle for the the next album and 
just dealing with the changes that happened along the way, which, you know, were difficult, but it was manageable and um, just kind of set it all up to just, you know, kick off at once. So we announced the world tour the day we announced the album and it just all went on sale at once and the music was received really well, so it just worked. And then I just had to move forward from that moment. Like it was a huge roll of the dice, but we just had to kind of be confident in what we're trying to do. And we also, you know, had the unspoken understanding that if it didn't work this time, we were probably going to throw the towel in. Um, but because it did, I don't think we ever will. Was the plan written down or in your head? Oh man, I got spreadsheets, I got <laughs> calendars, like all kinds of shit. So was it like you kind of saw the next two, three years and were like, so here's how we're going to pay off the debt and that's all written down. Here's that spreadsheet and yeah. here's the next step. And this is how it's all going to work out. I don't show my spreadsheets to the band because I don't fucking read them. <laughs> no, but in your, but for yourself at the very least. Well, yeah, dude, I have like rolling budgets and like I have monthly A&R statements that I do to make sure that we can pay our bills and pay our salaries and stuff. Like it's being an artist manager is essentially being a CEO of like uh, an artist really it's kind of what you're doing you're running a business for them you're doing a lot more than a lot of artist managers that i've ever met <laughs> just saying yeah but well, one of the bands that i works with tell me that as well i think it comes from the understanding that's what it is that's what he was you know what you were talking about earlier you were saying like the managers are usually not musicians that haven't actually experienced what it's like let me tell you something john most of these artist managers don't give a fuck about their bands. They just want to make money. They exactly. don't understand. That's what it is. Yes. They don't understand that if they want to make money, what they need to be looking at is in five and ten years from now, not two. Yep, I know. So instead of signing ten bands and throwing shit on a wall to see what turd's gonna stick, <laughs> they need to they need to pick two or three that they really believe in that'll believe in yep. them map out their career, give them a long-term strategy to work towards and then when they're selling, you know, gold records and 5,000 cap rooms, that's when the payoff is for the manager, you know. Exactly, yeah. Just think they'll be getting that nice 10 grand paycheck just for that one gig. Exactly, <laughs> man. Exactly. Yeah. But it's like, and and that's not even why I do it. I do it because... I want to help other artists realize the vision because I know that I'm good at this and I care and I know I can help. And the bands aren't forced to sign with me either. Like, obviously, Northland didn't really get a choice, but they agreed. Fucking dumb idiots. (laughs) 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 You know, the other bands, they wanted to work with with me and my business partner, Chris, and and that's why they... They signed to us and they haven't voided their contracts. So I guess they believe in in the way that we're doing things. But I'm, yeah, I, I think you always need to be looking ahead. And, you know, you need to have like, this comes back to the sport shit too because you, you need to have like a six-month and then like an 18-month and then like a five-year plan, I think, yep. for everything everything that you're doing that's significant. And even if it's only a rough idea that's adaptable, you need to kind of have an idea of where you're going because the minute we lost that vision in our career, that's when shit started to, you know, kind of fall off for us. As long as we've had that vision and, and kind of knew where we were going, we've always been fine. And I think yep. like... 
for any other band, it's going to be the same as long as they write good songs. Is it something that you make sure you keep going back and referencing or you kind of... Yeah, well, I, I'm a big fan of iCal. <laughs> Everything I do is in iCal. I have like 15 different calendars that I, I use to like plan stuff out. Yeah, same here. I've got like Dropbox up the wazoo and yeah, that's I, don't, I just got a way of doing it that kind of works for me, I guess. But um, yeah, you, you have to write stuff down. But it, I'm not saying stuff like sell 2,000 tickets on this day in two years. You just go, oh, well, well <laughs> you know, for this album we're going to do this because it makes sense and, you know, this is the, what the plan is, you know. And then the results you kind of use to make your next set of plans. Like a business projection. Yeah. I mean, it's you're the CEO of a business as an artist manager. That's all you are. You're not, you're not the one designing the product. You're the one having, you know, the, the long-term vision for where that product as a business is going to go. Yeah, it's realizing the potential of it, isn't it? Mm. That's kind of what it is, yeah. Because let's be honest, musicians are stupid. <laughs> well, they're not stupid. Like... Yeah, this was one of the biggest learning experiences I had was learning how to, to work with John because he's like the complete opposite person to me, right? I'm very pragmatic, straight to the point and, you know, very logical and he's the total opposite to me and none of the things <laughs> that he does make sense. The only thing that we share is a sense of discipline. Besides that, we're just the most completely two different people and we butt heads all the time because of it and we fight and we yell but it works. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, for him to do my job, he wouldn't be able to do it. His brain just doesn't work that way. He's a, a true artist in that sense because he's a true creative and that's all he cares about and it's what he's good at. And I'm a logical person and that's probably why I'm not as good of an artist as he is. But I have other skills that I can use to help him. Um so I think like musicians aren't stupid and creative people aren't stupid and I know that like a lot of creative people beat themselves up because the things that they use to define success in their life and in terms of society are just so out of touch with you know what they're good at as a person and what they need to be measuring themselves by and you know, it's just really unhealthy. So if you can focus on what you're good at and do a good job of that, find good people to help you, you know, you're going to have a good time. Yeah. Well, that kind of goes back to the ego thing, right? Uh, knowing what you're good at <laughs> yeah. and what you're not good at requires you to put your ego to the side and take a cold, hard look at reality and to realize I'm good at this one thing. I suck at this other thing. Let's get, let me get a partner who that's it. Compliments like, me. Not everyone's yeah. a Pliny who can write crazy music and be his own manager. You know, not everyone can do that. Not everyone should try and do that. If they can write good music and do nothing else, they should focus on writing more music, spending all their time on that, and then getting someone to help them with the other shit. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're dumb or anything like that. Not at all. It's just different skills. My choice of words was wrong, I guess, in this yeah, particular I, instant. Look, man, <laughs> I, I think the only thing is that there's fucking lazy people and there's people who aren't lazy. Yes. I don't think there's such thing as dumb or smart. We all have our own intelligences and skills and there's some things I'm completely fucking useless at and other things that 
I'm completely fucking useless at and flog myself <laughs> for, for years and years and force myself to get okay at. <laughs> like guitar. Because <laughs> it's a guitar podcast. Let's talk about that for a second. Sure. So being that we've basically established that guitar is not really your priority, it's just a means to an end. What did you do or what do you do to make sure that at the very least you're at the level that you need to be at for for your band, for instance? How do you keep it going, basically? I don't agree with guitar being a means to an end for me. Like in my career it has been, but it's still a passion. Fair enough. It's a passion for me. Okay. And I want it to be a passion. I don't want it to take over my life. But, um, you know, I don't want to treat it as a job either because I, I got into music for love and, and that's why I do it. It really depends on what's going on, but generally, like, I play probably, like, I don't know, half an hour to two hours a day most days if I can during the week. don't really play much on the weekends because I prioritise spending time with my partner. If I have free time, then I'm not riding my bike. And then leading up to a tour, um, I'll play for hours and hours and hours and hours and I'll record myself playing and record myself over and over and over again until I'm absolutely nailing stuff um, and I, I can play through songs back to back multiple times without making any mistakes and listen back on it and have it all really well in time with the music. That's what I do to prepare. That's perfect. That's the best preparation in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's difficult and it's revealing but like, you know, for me what I need to do, like, I have to keep my chops at a certain level and I just like playing guitar. But I, f I think, like, to be able to play music well live and perform well live, you have to have a level of aptitude at your instrument which is just really far beyond what you're actually playing because you need to be so able to easy. perform it. Yeah, exactly. So you can nail it and you can play with a band because playing to a click and playing to a band is, is something totally different, even if your band oh, plays yeah. to a click, right? Yeah, it's completely different. Yeah. So you need to be so on top of your playing that you can play with style and you can, you know, play behind or in front or wherever you need to be playing to gel with what the rest of that band is doing. Yeah, it's like you can only do so much preparation at home by yourself. You actually need, that's why, you know, bands rehearse because it's all about how you feel playing together. And it, that's, why, that's why there's so much differentiation in gigs because you play differently every single day, even when you're playing to a click. Yeah, that, that's right. And like my bands, we don't rehearse off tour. Before a tour, we'll rehearse for like a week, wherever we're about to start the tour. We'll book a room out and we'll play for 14 hours a day for a week. And then we'll go on tour. Nutters, 14 hours a day. Insane. Man, we, we fly to Europe, right? And we go straight into rehearsals. So we do 26-hour transfers and go straight into a rehearsal that day and play until, like, midnight. That's a good way to get back, get onto the time zone, Yeah, it's actually. fucking brutal, though. <laughs> <laughs> Why Europe? Well, we do the same with the US, too, but Europe's further, you know? Okay, so you just, you go to, okay, got yeah. it. States is, like, 15 hours, yeah. LA to Melbourne, but, yeah, Europe's, like, 26 Two flights, shit house. Yeah, it is. It was not so bad from Perth though, because from Perth it's a direct flight now to London. Yeah, and it wasn't actually horrendous. Well, I mean, not right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we 
did that How on the way back from it? Australia. 16 hours and 20 minutes. Fuck that. Dude, honestly, it was way better. Yeah, I be preferred mean. it. I just get fucking so pissed and just <laughs> <laughs> fall asleep and wake up hungover back home. I can't, I can't think of anything better because the stopover at Abu Dhabi fucking absolutely sucks, Mort. Like, yeah. you get off that plane after like 14 hours and you shot. And you have to run around a fucking airport and then get on another flight, except this For time you're hours. like gross yeah. and sweaty. And yeah, I, I hate that one. I hate it. Yeah. How long is the flight from Abu Dhabi to Australia? Uh, it's, well, it's 14 hours from Melbourne to Abu Dhabi, right? And then seven hours from Abu Dhabi to London. Yeah. Fuck that. It's usually more like, yeah, seven or eight, and then there's a transfer in between. Um, I'd rather just stay on the plane and not move. Exactly. I would too. Drink scotch. <laughs> you know, I got upgraded God. to business class on that flight once just at the gate. That makes it better. Stepped onto the plane and I was in business class and it was sick and I just got really fucking drunk because they had all this sick whiskey and wine and stuff and I was like, oh, I'm in business class. I'm just going to have to try it all. And I got so drunk that I, f I fell asleep in the chair, like sitting up, and I didn't even <laughs> recline it into the bed because you know how they got the full bed? And I was so excited to like be vertical for a flight. I was like, this is what I've been building up to all of these years. Yep. But because I got drunk, I, I fell asleep sitting up and I woke up with a sore back. <laughs> So you didn't even get the full business class experience. No, I did it, man. I fucked it. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got some questions from our listeners. Sure. I want to ask you because I don't want to, I know it's getting late for you. It's all good. So from Alex Priest. Hey, Josh, big fan from Adelaide here. Saw you guys last year for the first time. The show was sick. My question is, what do you think were the major steps that led from being a local band playing in Sydney to touring the country to doing headline tours across Europe and the world over? Curious to know if you think it was the music, business decisions, marketing, or label that made it happen. Thanks. Well, it wasn't the marketing or the label because we were touring the country before we were signed. The only thing is there was no one coming to the shows. Um, so I, oh yeah, yeah. I think uh, was it Alex? It's just a, a mix of everything, really. But it it just comes down to determination, man. It's like be determined to write the best songs you can and don't sleep until you nail them. And then you know, be determined to play as many shows as you can, even if you're getting paid fuck all and you're not going to sleep and you got to go to work the next day. Just do it because if you don't do it, someone else is going to take that opportunity. So I have a question here from Sal Biggs. It's kind of in the same vein, but um, what advice do you have for younger bands who want to tour and make a, a, a music career and what to expect? I always see newer or younger bands struggling to manage expectations. You're an awesome musician. Much love. You need to realize that your currency is songs, right? And your songs are going to get better when you play songs in front of people because you'll see how they kind of respond to your music. So that makes playing important too. But really you need to focus on getting your songs right. And, and I think it comes down to your artistic vision. And there was a band that I like, part of the thing that I do with my business is like um, we do free consults with local bands where they get to talk to us for like half an hour. And, you know, we take 
note of where they are and and kind of gives the give them some tips to to allow them to move forward. It, it's kind of like our way of giving back. And there was a band that came on board that we were talking to, and they'd written an EP that was real. Had like two fucking amazing songs on it, and then four other songs that weren't that good that were like different stylistically. And they were asking us what we should do, and you know, they couldn't understand why no labels were interested because they truly believed that their songs were really good. For them it was because their their vision wasn't right and it didn't kind of translate across their whole release and it was confusing what the band was about. So I think, like, understanding what your artistic vision is has to come before anything and then everything else will make sense from there. Great. So Carlos Sanavi is wondering why the 29-inch seven-string guitar and not an eight string instead. Well, what you'll find out, Carlos, is when you tune low, it doesn't matter how many strings your guitar has. What matters is your scale length. And I can barely play a seven string. So why would I play an eight if I don't need <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't I don't need all the notes on an eight string and I need a scale length that long because that guitar's tunes to like an open D sharp zero tuning. So Damn, you guys are that low. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. So we were using tricks on alien like pitch shifting and stuff, but I, I just wanted to play those songs properly. So I got a guitar that was like stupid long and they're building me another one that's probably I'll probably have it by the time this podcast comes out that's the same scale length it's 29 and a half inch and it's just tuned down that low um because it's sick and um yeah I, I like big strings and long scales and I don't know man that's just what I like <laughs> play whatever you like dude not not whatever you think's cool I agree okay so I've got a question here from Josh Gurun or Gurin. How long did it take as a band before you were happy with the overall sound of the songs you were writing? Ten years. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think there was an album we were truly happy with until we did Alien. I think I think so. You're happy with it at the time, but it's the only one I look back on and I'm still happy with. I, like, I think Singularity came close, but it wasn't, it wasn't as realised as, as Alien was. So it takes a while, man. All right, man. Well... Josh, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure meeting you and talking to you. Yeah, that was sick. It was a really good one. Yeah, it was a good episode. I was nice and quiet. I let Al have his flow on this one because it sounded <laughs> like you guys having a great conversation. Yeah, it was, it was a good time. It was a good time. I thought you guys were going to ask good. me about down picking and shit. <laughs> I mean, I could tell... Uh, from the beginning that that's not what this was going to be about, you know? No, I'll, I'll leave that to the real experts, I think. But yeah, it was great talking to you guys. So ego death, huh? Oh yeah, really, really important in my opinion, especially if you're going to be working with three, four, five other people in a in a band, definitely. It's, it's tough, man. I think it's one of those things that's easier said than done, but super, super important. The thing that I thought was key about what he said concerning ego death is not that it actually dies. It doesn't actually go away. You just redirect it. So you, you focus it on the final outcome, the real success rather than winning the petty battles. Exactly. Like battling amongst yourselves over, you know, 
who's writing this riff here or who's in doing there. this thing here. It doesn't really matter. I mean, the reason that you're part of that group is because those people want you to be there. I think it's a case of sometimes you just have to turn it off uh, as much as you can and just take a look at the bigger picture. Like, is this going to do good for the overall band? Yes. Turn the ego off. It's like, that's the, that's the only, that's the best way to approach it for sure. And I think that's a, a thing that a lot of artists struggle with. Definitely. You know, a lot of people struggle with. Oh yeah. Not just in music. I think that's translatable to anything, isn't it? Yeah. The, the thing is, I think people don't have the self-awareness usually to realize that they're even doing it because it's such a primal instinctual thing that they just feel these feelings, the ego feelings come up and they react to them. They're not thinking, oh, I'm acting like I have a big ego right now. They just, they want that thing in the song that they've wrote and they want it so strongly that they, they act on it with no self-awareness. And I think you have to develop your self-awareness in order to be able to basically uh, keep that part of yourself in check. I also think that it just needs a little bit of time. You know, if you have those feelings, just like take a step back for a, a week or so and actually think about it. Like that takes self-awareness. That does. Yeah. I think that's probably, yeah, that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's just the whole thing about being reactive instead of acting with intent. It's two completely different things. I think that acting from your ego most of the time is a reactive sort of thing to a, to an impulse. Time helps, but the thing is, time only helps if you're aware of what you're doing and take the time to to shut the hell up, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just uh, shut your mouth. Think about it. Don't speak before you thought about it. That's the. That's. I mean, we think about that in every single situation of life. Like when a decision, an important decision needs to be made, you don't just say your thoughts in that moment. You think about all the pros and cons to go with it. And that's clearly what Josh has done. Like he knows that Jonathan has this particular sound and he's happy to go with that. And that probably took a lot of, you know, thought on his part to do that. Smart move. Smart. Because look how well they're doing as a band. Yeah, and... Also, smart move for Jonathan to uh, realize that Josh can pilot the plane, basically. Exactly. That, that's, that's the other thing. The ego isn't just about writing things. Sometimes bands will fuck themselves over because they won't let the natural leader be the leader. That's not good either. No, it's not. Not at all. Yeah, so it's not just with creative things. It's kind of a life-wide Sort of issue, I think. I actually think that it's creative just in a different way. Like you have Jonathan creating the music, but then yep. you have Josh that's sort of creating, well, not necessarily create, creating, but displaying that vision in a different creative way. Well, he's creating opportunities. Exactly. But I do believe that entrepreneurs are artists. I just think they're business artists, basically. Uh, it still requires creativity and it still requires the same kind of drive. It's just, it's a different kind of skill set, but it's still a creative skill set in my opinion. And that's the understanding of um, basically understanding each individual person's strengths. Yeah. And I think that a lot of bands do not do that. They don't see what people are good at. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. A lot of bands would be better off if they recognized everybody's strengths and weaknesses and just, made decisions based on that. Yeah. Wholeheartedly agree. Another thing 
he talked about, which I completely agree with, is that your songs are your currency. And ego gets in the way of that too, because I think so many guitar players are so into, oh, I can play this thing that's impressive. I need to play this thing that's impressive. I need to impress those people. When in reality, yeah, that matters to a degree. Yeah, of course. But, but, but I can't think of uh, any bands that have really ascended very far who just wowed people technically. Even in Prague, the best bands who happen to be technically good always write the best songs. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a good example of that is Dream Theater. Like individually as musicians, they're all phenomenal, but they still wrote good songs that made sense to people that weren't musicians. Even though they are a musician's band, don't get me wrong, but you can put a song on and it still has an emotional take away from it, even without a musician, you know? You can sing along. The vocal lines, the guitar lines are always not overly complicated until you get to a guitar solo. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's why I think of Opeth too as like yep, perfect example of a musician's band that's focused on songs. I mean, they're not pop songs. They're 14 minute long, crazy songs, <laughs> but still like, you know, those guys can play way more technically than they choose to. They just, yeah. it's all just tasteful. It's tasteful, all about beautiful serving shit. the song, serving the song. That's basically the most important thing that you can do. And this is kind of where I've been sort of divided as well in myself it's like, once you find your sound, do you try and consistently reinvent the wheel with every single album where you do something a little bit different? Or do you embrace that sound? And then, you know, that's the main reason that people love your band, isn't it? Because they're, they're so used to that sound. They go to you to listen to that. So, you know, with Dream Theater, you can hear it between each album where there's a slight difference to it, like what's inspired them, but it always still sounds like Dream Theater. And they're not constantly reinventing themselves, but they're experimenting with maybe the tonality or something. So that's where I've been divided recently. It's like, do I continue to keep doing what I'm known for or just try something different? And I think that both ways obviously work, but it's understanding what it is that is going to work best for you, if well, that makes sense. There's the there's like the Slayer and Cannibal Corpse example, right? Where in some ways they get accused of writing the same album over and over, but they don't. If you actually listen to every album, there's changes. Like for instance, as Slayer got closer into the two thousands, they started having like more like breakdowny kind of riffs, like yeah. stuff like that. Like they always altered. They even had a blast beat towards the end of their career. Like they always altered their sound a little bit to fit the current time period. And so there's that where it's just a tiny little shift album by album. Then you get a band like Mr. Bungle where every album is radically, radically, radically different. But I think that the reason that people loved Mr. Bungle was because they were so out there. So them doing things that were radically different fit, fit what people already loved about them anyways. Yeah. So I think there's a way to do it without alienating people. In my opinion. It, it's very diff difficult, isn't it? It's a difficult line. Like for, for me personally, when I think of a, of a band, I go to them because I like a particular sound. And I think that, 
you know, Mr. Bungle, even though, yeah, all of it sounds radically different, but you're going there still for that sound because you know that it's going to be radically different. <laughs> you know, it's going to be insane. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. You go to them for insanity. Yeah. And everything that Patton's been involved with, that's Mike Patton, the singer. You can literally listen to, you know, Faith No More, Mr. Bungle, Phantomass, and they still have their own thing going on. So it's kind of a mixture of both in his particular instance, if you know what I mean. You know that yeah. it's him. I, I don't I don't know. Always. You know that it's him, basically. So he found what he what he liked about what he was doing and he stuck with it still, even though Mr. Bungle is so different. It still sounds like Mike Patton. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think discovering what you're capable of as an artist is uh, the most important thing. And I think it's cool that uh, you help people do that on, uh, on Riff Hard. Oh yeah, definitely. Like it's all about finding your own voice and when I say finding your own voice, it's not like you have to completely reinvent the wheel because that's nearly impossible, but it's discovering what makes you, you. And once you find that sound, you can hear it. I mean, it doesn't matter who it is. Like if you think to Steve Vai, I mean, he is one of the greatest guitar players ever, but I instantly know when it's him because it's probably in Lydian and he always kind of uses those similar sounding licks in his music. You love Lydian, don't you? I have really struggled to write in Lydian, actually. Because <laughs> I think you bring it up every other episode. Oh, do I? think I? you've said Lydian more than any other thing. Well, it would make a really cool dog name, wouldn't it? <laughs> and <laughs> I, I hate... I hate when people give dogs human names or like musical names. Pisses why, me off. Why human but it names? Pisses, pisses me off even more when they name a kid some musical thing, like Stanza. <laughs> Imagine calling your kid Dorian. I mean, I know some Dorians and I don't want to talk shit on their names, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think that shit's cutesy. Yeah. I mean, what's the name of your dog? Come on. Blondie. You've named her after a musical thing. No, that's not what I named her after. I'm not yeah, going to tell you what I named her after on the podcast. That's <laughs> not what I named her after. <laughs> that's not not even close. Is it with a Y or is it an IE? IE. Okay. We're not going to talk about it. On <laughs> it's not a musical name, I promise. So when you're doing Riff Rescue on Riff Heart, how do you help people? So you're helping them write stuff. So how do you make sure that Basically, you're not helping them sound like you. You're helping them sound like them. Well, the method, like the musical method, regardless of who you are, is always going to remain somewhat the same. Like there's certain criterias that you do with music that you can't avoid. And when I mean that is mean adding silence to your music or adding a rest or having an accent. Those are pretty standard musical sort of uh, expressions that you can't really get away from. So I, as far as I'm concerned, you should embrace those. And that's what we're doing in Riff Rescue. I'm basically taking the formulas that we, we all learned in music. If we did music GCSE, you know, you know what a quarter note is, a half note is, mm -hmm. 16th note, whatever. Taking that and seeing how you can manipulate the music that you already have there. So you're never too far away from the original idea. So during Riff Rescue, I'll take a riff from someone that's basically 
sent it over and said, hey, help me write this. I'll listen through a bunch of them, see which one clicks with me in the moment, because that's what's the most important thing. Does it click with me in that particular moment of time? And then I'll manipulate what's already there. So often or not, you know, we'll write for a 16 bar riff phrases, and we'll see that as one particular point of our song. When in, and I'll go in and I'll start taking little bits of it that really speak to me, you know, like those three or four notes. And when I mean those three, four notes, you know, you get these vocal lines stuck in your head, you know, that just stick with you, like, you know, and you can't stop singing it over and over these particular four notes from a vocalist of a song or something. And I'll manipulate those particular bits in different ways as like motifs. So whether that's if it's eighth notes, try it in 16th notes. I'll try reversing it. I'll try playing the notes in different order, the same four notes, five notes. Try playing them in different octaves. Try playing them in different positions of the scale that they're in and just manipulating this music so that you're never too far away from the path, but you can see just how far this one tiny little idea can expand to and it still relates to the original idea. Because that to me is music. It's about constantly referencing yourself as to the original idea. So that's kind of where Riff Rescue goes. It shows this is not just one idea. You can expand this in a million different ways if you really want to, just by using the musical expressions we all know. So you're helping people basically find the potential in their own riffs and their own ideas, which I think is one of the things that when you're learning how to write and starting, it's one of the hardest things for people to really understand. It's almost like, people will go with the first idea they have and think that that's the idea without really, really exploring where it could go. And great songwriters really explore the potential of every one of their ideas. I mean, if you take any great song that's come out, typically they'll only have a very small number of ideas. It's very rare for a great song to have like 17 ideas. Even an Opeth song or a Dream Theater song will typically just have a few themes and then they just, they vary them. And so I think you're helping people understand just what they can do with their riffs, which is uh, pretty transformative. But anyways, if you guys want help with your riffs and you want someone who's truly incredible at it, uh, go to riffhard.com, sign up, check out Riff Rescue and uh, talk to you next week, John. Yeah, I'll talk to you next week and I promise Riff Rescue will help you an awful, awful lot. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.